0: Welcome to season four of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches, and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change, because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive... The world benefits. This week I'm learning from Eric Zimmer, who has two sons. He is the host of the One You Feed podcast. He's a behavior coach, spiritual leader, and writer. Eric overcame addiction in his early years, giving him a unique insight into work addiction. But interestingly, when he found a new purpose in life, and started working less in his day job, he found less was more. Eric talks about aligning our choices with our values and questioning the value of climbing the corporate ladder. Eric and I also had a fantastic conversation on his podcast. So check out the one you feed. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did.
1: My name is Eric Zimmer, and I have a son who is 24, and I have a stepson who is 23, although I don't think there's a word in society for what your stepson becomes when you're no longer married to his mother. But for all intents and purposes, I raised him. He's my son. Do I even need to say stepson? But anyway, so I've got older boys. They're both out of college at this point, so my role is drastically reduced, even more reduced than I would like it to be. I think that's the parental dilemma, right? And we all go through it. So my role is definitely less than it used to be. I am the host of a podcast called The One You Feed, which is a pretty decent sized podcast. And then I also I create some programs that people who are in our community go through a program called Spiritual Habits, another program called Circle of Connection, and I do some one on one behavioral coaching with people also.
0: Great. And I so appreciate that behavioral perspective. And as I mentioned, the reason I came across you was that my husband heard you speaking on the Jim Rohn show and said, there's somebody that talks just like you about behavior change. So then I listened to your podcast and saw some of the other academics and things you're interviewing. So I was like, okay, this would be a great example of... uh, a life, basically, in some ways. So maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are now, and then we'll intersect that with how you've seeing other moms or dads in the world and the way you're helping them given the complexities of daily life.
1: Yeah, there is a six hour version of that story and there's a four minute version of that story, so I'll stay closer to the three to four minute version. At 24, I was homeless. I was a heroin addict. I was looking at going to jail for a long time, so I was not doing well. And it wasn't long after that. I was in recovery. I was probably three years into recovery when my partner at the time, who became my wife, announced that she was pregnant and Jordan was on his way. So I had Jordan pretty early in my sobriety journey. At work at that time, I was untrained and unqualified to do anything, as you might imagine. So I drifted into just by luck, the computer field, which was taking off particularly from an internet perspective around that time. And so my career for the next, I not know, 15 years was largely in software development. So I was doing software development, but I was also recovering. I did drink again. I stayed sober about eight years. I went back out. I drank. I did not go back to using heroin. And now I've been sober again, 15 years. So in there, I'm raising Jordan, I'm working on staying sober and recovering and all the elements that go with that. And I'm working in the software field. And then 15 years ago, I started a solar energy company, and which I was enormously unqualified to do also. And I did that and we had a few good years, but it was just not the right timing. Uh, Ohio wasn't the right place. There were a bunch of reasons that just didn't work out. There was a lot of political things that changed in the middle of what we were doing. And when that company failed, when I finally decided, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was very disheartened. I was very disheartened and I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I was back doing consulting in the software development world, which is when I started the podcast. I started it for a few different reasons. One was I just needed it. I was in my second marriage, and that marriage was not good. But we were very committed to our boys, so we were both there. And so I was not in a great place. I realized I was reading these kind of books anyway. Why not? have a conversation. And then my best friend, Chris was an audio engineer. And I thought it would be a way for him and I to spend more time together. Because one of the things I think a lot of parents will relate to is your social life changes. And my best friend, Chris never had kids. So we never intersected in that way. And I missed him. And so it was an opportunity to do that. So that's what started the podcast. I didn't start it as a career. I just started as something to do. But Over a number of years, it became possible that that could be my career, and I realized I truly loved it, and now I do this kind of stuff full time.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And actually just thinking about some of the same reasons that I originally started my first podcast, Women Behind the Wrinkles, was the same. I was missing speaking with older women who I had worked with for my whole career. And I was missing speaking with one of my colleagues who, again, I didn't intersect with, but we did the podcast together. So again, I think it's so important that it does provide this connection, but also in terms of really finding more of a a purpose in life. And the reason I ask about that is not just as a sort of general, oh, purpose is something, but really in relation to burnout. And if you have any stories about managing burnout or trying to prevent it, because it's definitely a different experience than the addiction you had, but trying to recover and maintain habits is something that's extremely difficult. So I could see that it it could lead to burnout, but really um, in, in this process of finding say a purpose for me, that is part of burnout. It's either part of burnout recovery, because it's something that we need to know, we need to find our tribe and we need to find a purpose to help us. Or actually, it's something in the workplace when there feels like there's no purpose to your work, and you're really misaligned with that. It's really related to one of the causes of burnout. So that's why I ask about it rather than just, oh, do you have purpose, which I feel sometimes is how it's spoken about. It's important.
1: Yeah. And I think you can also have purpose and get burnout. I I agree. It's an important ingredient in all of that. But just because you have purpose doesn't mean you don't get burnout. Or just because you like what you do doesn't mean you don't get burnout. I, like I said, four and a half years, I launched this podcast, I launched a coaching business and I had a very demanding job. I was a senior director at a fortune 100 company. I had a lot going on and I had teenage boys through some of this. I think the burnout kind of hit me to the extent that it did a couple years later. It was a couple years into doing my company. Now I'm doing what I love full time, what I said I wanted, what I worked so hard to get to and oh boy, maybe I'm a little burnout. So I think you can find it either way. But purpose is important, and here's an interesting thing about purpose that I think, just as you were talking, I was thinking about, which is, so I'm working in this role, and I've got this podcast, and the podcast is where I want to go. It's the thing I want to do. I'm aiming at that. And I think we have this sense sometimes that if we're trying to be somewhere, especially professionally different than where we are, that the best thing we can do and I think this is somewhat subconscious is to really not like where we are because then that will propel us. That turned out to not work in my case. What I realized was I realized very quickly that even though I'm aiming at getting out of here and I feel like my purpose is very clearly over here at the podcast, I had to find ways to make the job I was doing 40 hours a week meaningful and purposeful because if I didn't. What happened is it drained so much out of me. I didn't have the energy to commit fully to this other thing. So while I'm trying to get out of this job, I am at the same time having to find it more deeply so that I'm able to not get burnt out. And so for me, it started to be about looking at what are the elements of this job that are not about advancement, Right? Because so much of our lives and our job and our work lives is, and this isn't for everybody, but for a lot of people is, what's next? How do I get promoted here? How do I do well in this job? It's a lot of stress that comes with that. And when I suddenly realized that was not my goal anymore. I was able to look for what meaning is actually here in this role. And strangely enough, I think I got better at what I did. I'm wanting to get out and they're giving me more and more bonuses to try and keep me for me to stay because I'm doing well. But in one sense, I'm giving less to it than I ever have. It was this very strange sort of paradox, but I think some of that was, I was very focused on what's most important, what's most critical, what's most essential about this role and what's most meaningful to me about this role. So that was just coming to mind as you were talking about burnout.
0: And that is part of the solution to workplace burnout is to focus on the impactful things and to be focused because, yeah, we can expend so much time on energy about talking about how to work and not actually doing the things. So that's so interesting that it not only gave you energy, to do the thing that you were aiming towards, but actually it made you better at your job. So that is exactly the solutions we're trying to focus on. But one of the things that made me think about this is uh, to ask a slightly different question, but to focus on your experience, which is in your experience of recovering from addiction. We also talk about work being an addiction. So, is there anything that you can think about? Because really, that's what I see. A lot of people find it very hard to detach themselves from their work. And sometimes, too, when I'm in that place of passion and focused on something, I can't pull myself away from it. And I just open the computer. I don't even realize I'm doing it. And lots of people talk about it as an addiction. So. From your experience of recovering from addiction, do you see any lessons that people could learn from that to help them?
1: It's a really interesting question, and I don't know that I have any really clear answers. There were certainly times in my life I thought, I have traded one addiction for, I think, a far better addiction, right? If you've got to choose... heroin or being devoted to your career. I, having done both, I would unequivocally recommend the latter there, but that doesn't mean that it's not an addiction. An addiction is defined by, there are different definitions. But a basic workable definition would be something along the lines of engaging in a behavior again and again and not being able to stop despite there being clear consequences. So, if we use that as a general guide, then we could say that work gets very confusing because the consequences are harder to parse out, and that activity is very socially accepted and very socially supported. I think it's harder to be an alcoholic in some ways than a heroin addict. As a heroin addict, you're pretty clear, everybody is, this is probably a bad idea. Like, this is probably not going to turn out well. We have lots of people who are in a gray area of alcoholism because it is a socially acceptable thing to do. People do it. Workplaces orient around it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with alcohol at all. If I could drink it safely, I would. But it's harder because it's harder to fare it out. And so I think work addiction is that it's very socially supported, sanctioned. We are very much rewarded for it very directly. We penalize addicts, right? We penalize heroin addicts. We don't penalize overworkers. We put them on the cover of magazines. The thing I think that's really important in tweezing any of this apart is to be thinking what really matters to me? What is most important to me? And Am I living a life that is supporting those things or are consequences coming that I may not be aware of or I don't want or aren't aligned with who I work? In the early years of my addiction, I dropped out of college, I went for three weeks, and I lost my driver's license. But you know what? Those things didn't matter to me. I didn't care. Later. When something like my music, being a guitar player, started to really become impacted, I started to sit up and take a little bit more notice because I was like, oh, that really matters to me. So a lot of times I think it's just really easy to make the work is an easy addiction to have. Other addictions you have to make up excuses for. Work is its own excuse. Sorry, honey, you got to work. It's built right in. I think it can be addictive. And for me, the way to know whether I have an addictive relationship is to really look at... What am I not doing because I'm working? What am I giving up? What am I not doing? And again, the consequences of that can be a lot of us don't realize it till like our kids are grown and we're like, okay, the ship has sailed at that point. So how to balance those things, I think is very tricky. And then the last thing is, as we're talking about burnout, burnout is another one of those. I don't think most of us see it coming. We think we're fine. We're fine. It reminds me of Hemingway talking about how he went broke, right? Which was like slowly then all at once. I think that's what happens a little bit with the burnout to the extent I've experienced it or other people is it's, yeah, I'm a little bit tired. Yeah, I'm not on my game. And then bam, like, uh uh-oh. And so that's another consequence that's coming that we don't see. And addiction is notorious for you just keep buying current moment satisfaction at the expense of the future.
0: Thank you so much for that because I think that's such a great perspective and to pull those analogies. I love your answer and so many thoughts I have about that in terms of yes we're the frogs in the pots and we've been put on to boil and then suddenly our stress is way hotter and harder than we realized and I agree it hits us and most people who burn out they do have some sort of physical breakdown that then impairs them from going forward and we don't see it coming and again when you're saying about the kids and that we're not realizing how much we're missing out on. I still have this article to read that's You Only Have 18 Summer Holidays, because I am always complaining about the summer holidays. But I think a couple of other things you said there in terms of reward, I think we really have to recognize how much we are wa- rewarding longer hours versus impactful work versus rewarding well being versus rewarding collegiality. Like we are w- rewarding one thing. And then we're not recognizing the hidden costs at all of what this is doing. We're not realizing, and again, my experience with burnout, I experienced suicide ideation, and I know of other working moms who have died by suicide. And this is serious shit. This is hidden. This has got such devastating consequences for everybody. And not to mention like the lack of women of color leaders because they're burning out along the way.
1: There's a lot there. And I think that what you just said about rewarding long hours versus lots of work. When I started the solar energy company, I was still doing some consulting work. And then I was building the podcast while I was working. And there are environments where the number of hours you put in is absolutely what is rewarded. And I had grown up in my mind with that mentality. I've been in software startup culture. It's deep in that culture. When I suddenly started going, I want to try and be successful in these roles with as few hours as I can, right? Like if I can get away with 25 hours, I know they think full-time is 40, but if they're happy with me at 25, I'm doing 25. But I worried about, it. I was like, I oh boy, I'm not here as often. They're not going to see me. But I realized that some of that hour of game was in my head. Yes, it was happening around me. Yes, it was part of the culture. But when I stepped away from it, but kept delivering, I was still rewarded for delivering. Now, there's a reason there, you got to play some of that game a little bit. It was the same thing. Every email chain that went around, I thought I had to weigh in on it or else people wouldn't know I was there. When I suddenly went, I'm just not, I'm not responding to nearly as many emails as I used to. I just noticed it. No one cares. And again, I'm not saying that's everywhere. But I do think it is worth looking at our own roles and really thinking about, is there a way to do this and achieve what the real goals are, which we're often not even incredibly clear on? What are the real goals? Is there a way to do that with less time? And I think there are sometimes options, I was able to find them because I was driven by this deep desire because I needed I wanted that time. But I don't know why a software startup company or a podcast should feel more urgent than our children. It does. But I don't know somebody who's got kids who are out of college. I'm on the other end of it. When you said you've only got 18 summer holidays. I'm like, I would love a summer holiday. Come home for the summer, not happening. And yeah, it's that old cliche, but we often don't know what we have till it's gone.
0: Yeah, just in terms of the reward, the personal reward I get from doing the work I do and helping other people with burnout is unfortunately higher than the reward I feel myself as a mom. Like the message I give to myself is I'm a bad mom. This is a difficult job. I never get it right. The kids are always evolving, having new problems. And of course, They're actually great kids and always saying thank you and all these things, but there's not the same sort of reward either. I'm not getting a promotion.
1: It is not rewarding in the same way. You're not encouraged in the same way. It's interesting in my spiritual habits program, we have a module on generosity. And I go through talking about why all the world's wisdom traditions have talked about generosity, how much science we have around how good it is to be generous. And I said, the message here, though, is not necessarily go and be more generous. Another way to do this is to reconnect deeply with the generosity you are already doing and realize it as so. That is the parenting thing, is we don't give ourselves enough credit. If I ask a parent what's most important to them, they will say my kids. But we don't often live like that. And I think it is because, again, keeping values front of mind is hard, is difficult to do. But the more we do it, the more we realize we are making choices. We are the architects of our lives. We are making choices. The more we can connect the choices that we are making with what we value, I think the more integrated life feels. When you have kids, you get into saying, I have to do this. And I realized I was like, I've got to take him here. Then I got to take him there. And I had a moment where I was like, no, I don't. There is no law in this universe that says I've got to take my kid to soccer practice and then pick him up. I don't have to do any of that. Matter of fact, I could just leave him with his mother. Now somebody's going to make me pay child support, but I don't even have to be in his life when we look at that we realize we are making choices so when I go I am choosing to take him to soccer practice why because I value him I value the lessons he's going to get out of soccer I am choosing to take him here it's a small shift but it's a big shift it's a shift that gets us out of I'm trapped I have to do all these other things and a shift that gets us into I am making those choices And I can either then recognize that and realize I'm making those choices because they align with my values. And now my life lines up inside me better. Life feels more meaningful, more purposeful. Or I can go, oh, maybe those choices don't reflect my values. And in which case, maybe I don't have to do them. Or if I'm doing them out of obligation or guilt or fear? Is that what I want? Is that how I want to orient? And so I think for me and with a lot of people I've worked with, it's been really important to get back to what do I value and what choices am I making? and Do they align with those?
0: Right. That's so important. And I did an analysis of all my behaviors. Cause again, I think you do have to recognize also your own self generosity. So that was a tool that a coach gave me is write down everything you're doing. Cause she's trying to get me to fact check my message to myself about being a bad mom. She goes, write down everything you do for everyone in the whole wide world, work, home, family, everything. And then she goes, look at that list and tell me, you know, Are you a bad mom when you do all those things? Literally, she made me write thank you to myself on all those things. And then I looked at everything I was doing and said, which ones am I doing? Because I want to and out of obligation. And oh, my goodness, Eric, that feeling of realizing how much I was doing out of obligation, it was such a horrible feeling. And that's part of what I've had to recognize in my burnout recovery, how much I am driven by obligation and fear But again, one of the tools I was given, because being from the UK and being in the US here, I kept thinking, it's because I'm here in the US that I'm struggling or I'm unhappy, but I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to be that parent. So how do I reconcile this? And basically, she said to say, every day, today, I choose to stay. Until you can't, until you can't say those words. Having the choice and looking at these things as I have the choice is so important.
1: Yeah, and our choices have consequence. I'm not saying just do whatever you want. Our choices have consequences. And obligation is a word that can be, we could look at that as a positive or a negative connotation. But an obligation that I choose again and again has a very different relationship to one that I grind through. I still go through this with mom. If you're listening to this, sorry, my mom needs a lot of care. And there are times that I will get into, I have to go see my mom. I have to go do this for my mom. No, I don't. My brother and sister don't live in this state. They've made the choice that they don't have to do any of that. So I can go, okay, no, I'm choosing to go over there. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it out of a sense of what's right. I'm doing it out of a little bit of obligation, but it's an obligation that's coming from me choosing something that I value. I value this. I value being a good son. I'm not saying my brother and sister don't. I'm just saying that even obligation, we have responsibilities and all that, those are real, right? But when we connect that we are choosing to do them, like you said, I'm choosing today to be here. I just think it can make a big difference.
0: Yeah. And again, realizing those values, because I think values are so important, but understanding that the things I was valuing and living, I still valued them in terms of that exercise people suggest you go through, like, you're going to be on your deathbed. Is this the life you want? And I'd looked at my life as a public health professor and a mom. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing a, a life here. I'm doing a good job here. So that didn't help me move out of it because there was still negative things about the life I was living that obviously were very negative the way they were making me feel that it was a life I wanted to escape. But yeah, I could see it had value. So then I was so confused in this whole values exercise thing, because it's like, I did value the things I was doing, but they weren't values that would then allow me to put myself first.
1: And that's tricky. Any of these things, I think, are tools in a pretty big toolkit and which tool we need at what time is important. However, I would suspect that the more often you reflected on is this the life I want, it gave you some comfort. But yeah, it is not a panacea for all that ails us by any stretch of the imagination. You can be doing the things you want, but the structure and makeup and shape of your life may not be right. Like I'm a big believer. Like I know for my mental health there are physical health components that I have to take care of. If I'm not doing those, it doesn't matter what I do. Value, I could be doing values where I feel like crap. Like I have figured out after a certain number of years, there are certain things that I need to do to take care of my mental and emotional and physical health that if I don't do them, no amount of anything else really makes up for it. And so this is part of what's so tricky is you try to line up a number of different things While you are living a life that is jam-packed and full, these challenges are real. There's a reason that so many people are struggling. It's because we are in a system that is very difficult to navigate. And I think it's sometimes important to realize that we take this as such a personal failing But there are systemic issues that are at work here too. So we can't necessarily change those, but we should, and maybe we should try, but at the very least, we should recognize them as impacting upon us. And then we start to take our own quote unquote failings less personal.
0: Yeah. And I think that's so important around burnout in the workplace, because basically employers are saying do self care, and people are doing self care, and then they're still burning out. So for example, I would focus on my physical health, exercising, and those things, and never paid any attention to my mental health. But you can pay attention to both. And like you say, it can be the conditions at work that are leading to your burnout. But when the message from your employer, and the message from, unfortunately, U.S. society as a whole is you as an individual are to blame for this. And yes, we have power, we have control. And those are so important. But understanding that we're influenced by these systems that we work in and the cultural expectations, the social norms of working harder is the badge of honor you can wear. Yeah, these things are are, are definitely challenging. So I totally see that we have to try and do work to change the system and to change those social norms. Thinking about some of the behavior change work that you're doing and how you help people now and then just leveraging a little bit about the fact that you are on this later side of of fatherhood. Are you helping dads to think through how they can be more present in the moment? And what also are you seeing in terms of the ability for dads to be able to show up more or less these days than previously?
1: In my individual work, I work with a wide variety of people, but my spiritual habits program is and i suppose i should define the word spiritual because i could it just as easily use the word psychological or philosophical right principles that i think underlie living a good life and the reason i call it spiritual habits is because i'm taking these core principles that i think again all sort of wisdom and philosophical traditions have said are important and i'm marrying it with um behavior change science Because what I'm trying to do is figure out, and I've not fully solved the problem, I think I've made a nice start in it, is how do we bring more moments of meaning and connection and purpose and uh, calm to the day-to-day moments of our lives? How do we take these things and put them through our lives? So you mentioned self-care. Self-care is an interesting example. Maybe a meditation practice is part of your self-care. It is certainly for me, It is for a lot of people. If you were to get to the point where you have a daily meditation practice, hats off to you, it's hard to do, but hats off to you, good work. But you will know that you are still a long way, right? The problem with most of us is the minute we leave that container, we forget all about any of that until the next day because we are just off and running. So the question becomes how do we actually, in the midst of a busy life, I'm not gonna meditate for two hours a day. There's no more time. How do I bring that to the moments of my life? And yeah, I work a lot on that, trying to solve that question, because I think that is the fundamental challenge. I'm not going to a monastery, right? I'm not withdrawing from life, I'm right in it. And how do I work? And yeah, I do work with people on how do we interject more moments of presence in our life?
0: I really appreciate that. But I also think it is about transferring these skills to different contexts. So, for example, I saw a great program on the Karmap from a professor in the UK all about how to take mindfulness moments just before you enter a meeting, not for the same reasons that you're going to do the mindfulness meditation for yourself, say, in the morning, but basically because you're going to then say... Am I going to come to this meeting with an open heart, open ears? So again, I think that is so important that we transfer these skills from our personal lives into the other very busy parts of our lives because they can be applied and be so important.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to teach people to do. My spiritual practice is Zen Buddhism, and in Zen Buddhism, there's not a spiritual part of your life and the rest of your life. There is no separation. No part of it is not, it's all one integrated thing. In AA, we used to say, practice these principles in all our affairs, right? Like, how do we do this stuff? Yeah, before we go into a meeting. And this gets back to where we started in some ways around If I'm looking at some of my meaning at work, deriving from how I treat the people around me, the impact that I can have on the people around me, I have an opportunity to practice my value of kindness or compassion or love or whatever you want to call it, whatever your value, whatever your word for it is. I have countless opportunities to practice that throughout the day. It is there. Our life can be and actually is the path.
0: And I do think that's so important because, again, I see mums who then do potentially leave their jobs because of burnout and then they burn out as a stay at home mom if that's one of their options for a while. So, again, we need boundaries in all areas of our life. So just as we touched on systemic and just thinking of your kids and the place they're at, what is it that you would like to see the future of home and work life looking for your kids or whether that's then young kids next. And so how do you think we can get there as a society? What well, first is the vision that you would like for that to be? And then how might you try to get us there?
1: I'm flummoxed by the question of how to make big style change to society. What would I like to see things be is I just think a world in which... We are collectively more aware of the ways in which we are interdependent upon each other, the ways we influence and impact each other, and something that is not so relentlessly economically driven, something that really starts to recognize like that is not the only measure that's important, it, it is an important me- people not living in abject poverty, it's a good thing, right? Abject poverty is terrible. As, as a world, we've done a good job of lifting a lot of people out of it, right? There are some metrics we could say the world is better than it's ever been, but we also can look at the really affluent countries and go, something is not right. Something is amiss. And I do think it comes from making more money being the most important thing. It's not that money has no role in happiness and well-being. It does. But not to the extent we think it does. And anybody who has been like, once I get that promotion, I'll be happy, knows what I'm saying is true. You get it and you are not happy. So my son is an activist and he is very interested in large-scale change. I am much more like interested in individual change only because it just seems to be where my gift is, right? So when we start to think about what do we have to do as society, I don't know how to pull those levers. I do know, though, that a society is made up of people. And that when individuals when we make the choice that we're going to value something else. We do have that freedom to value different things, to make different choices. They may not be easy choices. They may be choices that put us outside of the social norm to some degree, but we do have them. It's why we hear about one of my favorite books ever is Man's Search for Meaning, the story of Viktor Frankl in the concentration camps, right? The reason we find those stories so moving is because we see a single human being in the midst of the worst conditions, say, somehow there's a way for my human spirit to emerge from this and to find some beauty in all this and we love that because it shows us that and so it points to we have more ability and choice in life than we think again i always want to be careful because some people are in a have to position but i did not have to work as hard as i did during my kids Years, I could have made different choices. They would have been different economic choices, right? I would have lived in a different place. But I could have. That was in my power. But I was still bought into the next thing. The promotion, the bigger house, the next car, the private school. I was still bought into that thing. And I think I would do things very differently if the me today could go back to when my son was three. I think I would make very different choices about what the center of our lives was about. I didn't fully answer that question, but hopefully there's some answer in
0: there. Absolutely, And these are hard questions, but I think that's also just reminding ourselves of our ripple effect, right? When we role model something, and that kind of comes back to a little bit, it doesn't really come directly back to what you were saying before. Often when we do things, nobody notices, right? So there is that side to it that when we stop doing things that we think are important, that other people don't think are important, we are overestimating how much effect we can have. And that's why I think like this whole quiet quitting is happening because one, people don't notice when you're doing this, but two, they're feeling the need to do it quietly because th- there's no safety to do it out loud. But I do think on the other side of that, there is ripple effects. And when we do um behaviors out loud, that's what social norms are. They're us all doing things and us influencing the system influences us, but we also can influence it. So I think that's really important. And I think one of the things you said as well makes me think about uh, different generations because again you said you enjoyed interviewing older people because of the wisdom they have and I definitely had that draw as well but as I think about generations I think about previously it was about can I get food on the table and then it was can we have a house that we own to live in and then it was okay what other material goods education etc can I provide for my family and then I think I would say that was my parents' generation, the material goods generation. And then my generation is, how can I also express love to my children while providing them this security? And so I think each generation looks back and says what they didn't get. So I could say, yes, I got material goods, but I didn't get love. And whereas I'm giving love to my kids, but I think what they will look back and say, you didn't give me time.
1: Oh, that is very profound. Yes, that is a really interesting way to look at the world. And I think you're right. I think my son would probably say that. Although I mean, I tried, which is what every parent says. Like, I tried. I did my best. Yeah. He played sports. I was at every game. That was my thing. I'm not missing one. I'm not. I'm sorry. I got to go. I know that you are all still here working, but his lacrosse game starts in 15 minutes. But that's just me trying to reassure myself.
0: I did okay. Exactly. So sometimes I try to end asking dads, and maybe you miss this role or maybe you still do them, is dad jokes. Because again, in our house, we always say that dad's the fun one, but I'm actually the funny one. <laughs> And there isn't such a thing as a mom joke because they're all good. <laughs> so total stereotypes here. But this is a heavy discussion we're having and there's so much depth to it. But at the same time, I really value that my husband does bring in the fun side of things as the seriousness of which I also bring in. So do you have a favorite dad joke?
1: I have a favorite joke I enjoyed telling my kids and I enjoyed them, them attempt to retell it. So I'll go with that one. So a duck walks into a bar goes up to the bartender and says got any bread bartenders no we're a bar got any bread no i just got done telling you we don't serve any bread we serve alcohol we've got some chips over there but no bread got any bread look pal i don't know what's wrong with you but we do not have any bread got any bread listen if you say that one more time i'm going to nail your beak to this bar got any nails no <laughs> Got any bread so What's great about that joke is to watch like a three or four-year-old attempt to retell it because they don't quite get it. They know there's something about bread and something about nails. I have good memories of watching them try and tell that joke when they were little. And I think it is funny.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I could see them every time. At least they can get the line, got any bread?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So again, I don't want to put you in position of giving advice when you don't necessarily feel like that's the right thing to do but if you had advice either for dads out there or like you said to your former self that's quite often a tool we ask people to think about what would that be because what was the moment where you suddenly said I don't need to be this productive work and promotions don't need to be my value what was the moment that changed for you and how can you help others make that change sooner than later
1: It's a really good question that I don't want to give a flip answer to because it's easy to look back and say that stuff's not as important but at the moment you don't know that you're worried about security you don't know what's coming. I just think that I would advise my former self try and adjust your priorities a little bit so that you not only have a little bit more time for your kids but you actually have a little bit more spirit for your kids. A little bit more energy. Because even though I think I did a decent job of being there time-wise, I wasn't always there. I think that would be the thing I would say is, you know what? Okay, you're home. Don't keep looking at email because you're just anxious about work. Manage that anxiety. Be with your kid. Figure out how to be more present here with your child. There's lots of things that work in the society and the culture did to me that I felt like I had to live up to. But there was a lot of me committing more than I think really had to be committed to it. I'm not even saying with big changes, I didn't have to change my job. I didn't have to quit. I didn't have to give up, but there were ways that I think I could have said, you know what phone goes down at six o'clock and it comes back out at nine o'clock. If I want to work after nine o'clock, that's my business. That's my time. But these few hours not only am i physically here i'm going to work to try my best to be here more present with the kids which is far easier to say than do and then i think the other thing i would have probably advised my former self to do was find more activities to do with other parents and other families i could have done that and it was challenging because the communities we were in i didn't relate with a lot of the people i probably could have looked a little bit harder at that, because I think that was an element of support that I did not tap into that would have supported me in not being so alone, not being so burnt out. I think I could have done more of that had I been more cognizant that that was valuable to do.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com, for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone, and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The Peer Learning Collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, The group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan do study act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared, and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save-the-day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, ADECO, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there've been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a Peer Learning Collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, Identifying and operationalizing key change levers, using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change, using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging, using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.